Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently with your host, Matthew O'Connell, featuring interviews, long-form conversations, and think pieces exploring theory and practice within a 21st century practicing life. Visit imperfectbuddha.com for more, or keep listening to new episodes at the New Books Network. What is it that we struggle with? Which forms of contemporary Buddhism make sense to us? Which offer practices or a community that we feel we could be part of? and that we may eventually commit to. Many struggle with such questions and an inevitable emergence from them has led to the emergence of secular takes on Buddhism. Remove the mystical, take away belief in reincarnation and some kind of afterlife, and other unscientific aspects of Buddhist creed, chuck in some rationality and an appreciation for science, perhaps a little agnosticism, and what emerge are a variety of secular forms of Buddhism. Secular Buddhism is a name first, a combination of two words that have very rich histories. Like many things that exist today, finding the right name can be tricky. Branding has, after all, become an integral part of the existential question Who am I? And many, if not all, feel at least some compulsion to identify themselves in relationship to a life increasingly lived online. Secular Buddhism has had different labels attached to it because of the difficulty, I guess, of finding the right name. Or perhaps that's presumptuous on my part. Either way, we've had agnostic Buddhism, pragmatic Buddhism, atheist Buddhism, but secular remains the most prominent title of them. Secular Buddhism as a wave within Western Buddhism actually includes the American Insight community and the rise of MBSR, as well as public intellectuals promoting non-religious expressions of Buddhism, such as Sam Harris, Owen Flanagan, and even Robert Wright. It also defines to some degree Goenka and his promotion of secular meditation, kind of at least, and it captures the more explicit owners of this title, the Secular Buddhist Association, and one of its founding influences, Stephen Batchelor. We are all a product of our age, and the secular Buddhists are no different. On the one hand, they are what they claim themselves to be, a loose practice community working on adapting Buddhism to what they see and experience as our age, On the other, they are also part of a wider tension between the secular, religious and post-secular characteristics of contemporary society, the one that we're all living through, struggling with and affected by. A question that informs my curiosity in interviewing two figures connected to the explicit world of secular Buddhism, Winton Higgins and Stephen Batchelor, is to what degree the desire to explore a contemporary transformation of Buddhism in broadly secular terms 
is shaped by engagement with other sources of knowledge and to what degree those sources are used merely to justify claims made about Buddhism or used to validate pre-existing principles. This is a callback to the principle of sufficient Buddhism. Inevitably, for those who are unfamiliar with such a term or concept and its location within non-philosophy and subsequently non-Buddhism, the idea must be broached in a roundabout sort of way. My discussion with Winton mirrors that, yet is also coupled to my deep appreciation for all of those who are engaged deeply in the practicing life and asking good questions of it, and Winton certainly falls into that category. The religious impulse, the desire for meaning, the irrational characteristic of human nature all resist the clean claims of the secular, and a further avenue of exploration might include directly addressing concepts emerging from post-secular studies. For now, this interview fits into the ongoing practice season of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. So as well as a discussion of the secular, we will hear about Winton's life of practice, his struggles and outcomes. Winton Higgins is an Aussie, that uh, means he's from Australia, if you don't know that term. He teaches international studies at the University of Technology in Sydney, Australia, whilst also engaging in a very rich career of creative writing. He has also been a board member of the Australian Institute of Holocaust and Genocide Studies since its inception in 2000 and teaches a course at the Aquinas Academy on various ethical, social and political topics each year. Winton has been a Buddhist practitioner since 1987. That's when I was approximately 10 years old and a teacher of insight meditation since 1995. A member of the Tuhiri editorial board, he has contributed to the development of secular Buddhism internationally and is a senior teacher for Sydney Insight Meditators. He has written two Buddhism-related books, Revamp, Writings on Secular Buddhism, which we touch on a little in our conversation, and After Buddhism, a workbook, which is a companion text to Stephen Batchelor's work of the same title. He's also written articles for Dharma Seed, Tricycle, and the Journal of Global Buddhism. And if you're interested in historical novels, you might want to go and check out some of his work too. I hope you find this conversation of value, and perhaps you will resonate with Winton's intellectual and practical engagement with Buddhism. Enjoy! Now, Winton, uh, we've got quite a few questions to look at today, but obviously if we're going to talk about the secular, before we get to secular Buddhism, it might be worthwhile just reminding ourselves what we mean by secular. Let's talk about that first. What, what does secular mean to you? Well, it means exactly what it meant to um, St. Augustine, I guess, when he used the Latin adjective secularis, and it means of this time and of this world. Um, and so it's... Um, it's concerned with uh, with life as we know it, life as we live it. Hmm. Okay, that's a pretty easy definition to grapple with. Why is this important to you specifically? Why did you decide that this was a direction you wanted to take and uh, deepen your interests in? Well, it seems to me it's um, that the early Dharma 
as taught by Gotamatha, the historical Buddha, <clears throat> was secular um, in essence. I mean, you look at, at, say, the central practice of meditation as set out in the Satipatthana Sutta, it's all about looking very, very closely into our experience, second by second, minute by minute. Um, and, um, and so the, the spiritual potential of that uh, is uh, all depends upon what is happening uh, in this world, in this time, to this particular organism. So uh, it seems to me that what is secular is, is absolutely central to the dharma, what we call, you know, what the word we usually use for uh, Buddhism. <clears throat> Buddhism is a problematic term. But um, it seems to me that the, um, the development of the Buddha's tradition after his death took another turn altogether and, and began to attract belief systems and uh, assumptions and rites and rituals that really had very little to do with this life in this time. And um, so in a way, I think secular Buddhism is, um, I mean, one of, one of the facets of it is that it's a corrective against that. So it's getting back to uh, what uh, the Dharma <clears throat> has to say about living this life in this world at this time and how we can do it to best effect. Okay, so you've kind of already started getting into the, the following question, which is, you know, what would be your working definition of secular Buddhism? So is it simply this world application as in the secular plus Buddhism, or is it something more? No, I think it's uh, that the first thing is to situate secular Buddhism as an adaptation of um, the Buddhist tradition to Western, modern Western culture and life. Um, so, in, you know, instead of transplanting Thai Buddhism or Tibetan Buddhism or, or whatever, we go back to first principles and figure out what it would mean to express the Dharma in terms that uh, someone involved in modern Western life uh, would understand, would, would recognise. So what we're doing actually with secular Buddhism, and there are many other approaches to doing this, to um, re-acculturating the Dharma for Western, modern Western people and people who are not non-Westerners who partake of that culture, um, it's very, it's, it's comparable to what the Chinese did 2,000 years ago when they took the Dharma from its um, ancient Indian cultural integuments and brought it to China and expressed it in terms that people acculturated in China would actually understand. And they, it made a great difference to the way that Dharma was expressed. It became more positive, more optimistic, more humanistic, but it was still highly recognisable as the Buddha Dharma. And I think that that, that kind of establishes a precedent for what uh, secular Buddhism is doing now. So do you think there's anything uh, missing from the definition uh, as presented for the secular and secular Buddhism? Is there anything that doesn't quite fit into this uh, description you've given that might be important? Yeah, I think one thing that's often missed is that uh, it's, it's a distinction that um, the 
British philosopher Alastair McIntyre made some decades ago between a living tradition on the one hand and a dead or sedimented tradition on the other. And the difference is that a, a living tradition is one in which um, the, the current practitioners know uh, what the foundational questions were, what were the issues facing the uh, founders of whatever tradition um, it's a case of. And in this case, of course, it is the Buddha Dharma. So to understand how this began, what were the questions being asked, what were the tentative answers being given, and how has that conversation been developed over the generations, over the centuries? So uh, a tradition, a living tradition, is an intergenerational conversation. It's also intergenerational conflict, debate, knocking things around. And, uh, and so if we are going to practice in that tradition, this is, this is uh, what we need to know. And this is the responsibility we must uh, pick up. As opposed to uh, a sedimented or dead tradition in which the current practitioners don't know any of the background, but are simply being inducted into a certain set of beliefs and rituals, um, which they faithfully reproduce without really understanding how they got there and why. So I guess, you know, to sum that point up, I think um, secular Buddhism is, um, is very conscious of being part of a living tradition. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, because I think that hasn't always been so clear in some of the earlier definitions of secular Buddhism. And it gets to the, the next question, which is about terms such as Dharma and Sangha, because you've been using these terms so far. Part of me does wonder why, you know, if you're going to be a secular thing or a secular shift within the history of Buddhism, why continue to rely on words such as Dharma or Sangha? Uh, I mean, secular Buddhism became famous initially because of its uh, willingness to to either translate or get rid of notions of uh, reincarnation or other uh, mystical descriptions of other realities that we don't know anything about. But uh, one could argue that maybe it would be wise then to keep going with that and even get rid of some of this terminology and come up with, in our case, English language descriptions of Dharma or Sangha. Have you thought about whether it's necessary to do that and whether a secularizing process might even push forwards the kind of language you habitually use? I think I'd actually robustly uh, argue against your suggestion because I think um, if we are going to be a living tradition that goes back to Gotama, then why not use everyday terms that he was using that weren't religious? I mean, the first um, use of Sangha, for instance, was uh, for the tribal council, uh, you know, of his people, the, the Sakya people, and the other small tribal republics who were around in his day. The, the council that met in a political decision-making mode was called a Sangha. And he thought that the model was a good one for, uh, because it was based upon equality of uh, participation, the freedom of discussion, that this was a good model for uh, his uh, renunciant followers to, to use when they were, when they were trying to deal with the usual issues of communal living. And, and Dharma is a, um, you know, a, a term that just means essentially the teaching. So 
by you by continuing to use these terms, we're continuing to renew and reissue that connection with the, with the origins of it. Mm-hmm. What about the role of faith within secular Buddhism? Do you think there's something to be said about that, uh, especially in relation to a figure like Stephen Batchelor, who's perhaps the most famous secular Buddhist, uh, but also what you've been speaking about at uh, the Pali Canon and the, at least the idea of this original figure of the Buddha? I, I can't see um, that there is a problem with faith because the, the Pali word, you know, the, in the language of the Pali Canon, the word is satha. And it means confidence. Essentially, it means confidence. It means confidence in the Buddha's teaching, uh, confidence in the um, community of practitioners, and it means also, equally importantly, self-confidence. Confidence, I can do this practice, I can move forward uh, using these practices and, and these ideas. So that's what it meant in the Buddhist time, and that is exactly what it means today for secular Buddhists. So there's no, absolutely no reason to move away from that conception of faith. And particularly, I think now that um, uh, that uh, Martin Hedlund has written his book about secular faith, which has really uh, added muscle to the idea of, of um, how secular practitioners should have faith. I mean, his idea of faith is that um, we are by nature uh, at risk, transitory, mortal creatures with finite resources and energy and so on. And that is the life we must commit to. That is the, and so commitment uh, is also part of I think the original concept of uh, faith, but um, but I think that Eglund has done us all a great favour in showing that we are committed to a secular path because of who we are, because of the the nature of uh, human life. Okay, great. That's clear. I've been around Buddhism for a long time. I remember uh, Stephen's first book coming out and reading it and uh, seeing some of the, the conversations that grew up around that. And of course, there's, there's been a little bit of controversy, although I think in most cases it's it's pretty insignificant for secular-leaning Westerners who, who may or may not have found interest within this specific uh, manifestation of, of contemporary uh, Buddhism. The question I have is, looking back, how much change has taken place within the world of secular Buddhism? And is is secular Buddhism and, um, and the, those key figures involved in it, like yourself, seeking to grow? Is it seeking to solidify itself as a new form within a long line of many Buddhisms, as, as you've sort of been hinting at? Is there even maybe a sense of evolving beyond the limits of Buddhist discourse to some degree? You've mentioned uh, Western philosophers, one that's uh, no longer with us and a living one. Um, this seems to indicate some degree of engagement with uh, ideas and sources of knowledge outside of Buddhism. To what degree do you think that kind of thing is going on? And is there a, a kind of project, a big project to, to grow or, or to adapt or evolve or, or something like this? And if so, uh, how do you see yourself involved in, in either of those kinds of projects? First up, uh, I don't think one can treat secular Buddhism as an entity that has a will or has a program or something like that. At the moment, it's um, uh, you know, it's made up of a few websites, a number of um, 
small local practice communities and um, and a bunch of individuals who followed their own noses in what they think is is important. Um, I you know I've um, I feel very much at home with Stephen Batchelor's work, for instance, and yet I have uh, certain emphases in what I'm writing that are not in his. I mean, I I really like um, psychoanalytic thought and think that that has quite a bit to say. I also think uh, that the um, the lost chord in understanding the development of Buddhism is institutionalization. I mean, the fact that it's it's not just a question of of the ideas existing in midair, but of institutions which have developed certain practices, certain interests, certain geopolitical and economic interests, uh, which have helped to shape doctrine. You know, the great Italian writer Umberto Eco was onto this with the name of the rose. Um, and it seems to me that that's a terribly important part of understanding what aspects of um, of Asian Buddhism, we really don't want to reproduce in the West. So, so, so um, there's no sense in which we are going. We're heading in a particular direction to achieve a particular result. Uh, at the moment, and um, you know, when you talk about the secular Buddhist world, it really is just a few websites and a few local. Um, a few local uh, practice communities and a few uh, retreats back in the days before COVID-19 uh, when, you know, you had um, people who moved around internationally and run retreats here and there. Um, so, you know, we can't impute any kind of ultimate intention to any of that. At the moment, it is a developmental trend in, uh, in, in Buddhism in the West. So how do you stay critical then in your relationship with the ideas and practices that are in this case not just part of the secular Buddhist world but but those you're you're interested in how are you uh, keeping yourself sharp and well avoiding really the, the the tendency I think which which can come about perhaps not in this case but I'll, I'll throw it out there anyway the ability to develop unquestioned assumptions perhaps towards ideas and practices um Curiosity is the basic answer to that. I think um, most of the people who are contributing to uh, secular Buddhism are extremely curious people. Um, and, uh, and so, and, and a lot of the time we are curious about, we have certain um, objects of curiosity in common. For instance, Stephen and I are heavily influenced by post-Nietzschean, post-metaphysical philosophical thought from American pragmatism to you know phenomenology and existentialism um, so um, we're constant I think this is this is probably uh, a point of differentiation between secular Buddhism and other manifestations is that we are constantly looking for non-buddhist affinities and convergences that help us to articulate and to develop um, the Dharma as it applies to modern life. And I mean, Heglund's work is a, is a, a great example of that. Um, but there are others like um, uh, Gianni Vastamo 
and um, Richard Rorty and so on. You know, there's a whole list of people uh, that we drop footnotes to who are, help, you know, doing a lot to help us to re-articulate the Dharma. It's still the Dharma, but uh, with different emphases. I mean, one good example is, um, is the Buddha's um, concept for an experience of not-self. So, you know, this is something that every insight meditator who practices with the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha's original teaching, comes across. This is an experience they have of that everything that, um, uh, that they think they can pin their identity to uh, simply melts away in a, in a sustained um, meditation practice. Uh, and so this idea of not self means is a, is a negative term to express that experience. But when you get to Heidegger, it's a, it becomes a positive experience of being in the world um, or being there, Dasein. Uh, so he's expressing the same idea, you know, that we aren't these little uh, packages of subjectivity wrapped up in a hypodermis, but we are actually uh, part of a wider life world. And, and, and Heidegger's way of expressing it is, 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 is very powerful, I think. Mm. Mm. So, so it's that kind of affinity, that sort of convergence I think really helps us along. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, that's an interesting uh, set of choices of uh, intellectual influences or partners to engage with in your um, ongoing search for knowledge and uh, exercise of your curiosity. And these are sources of knowledge that I'm familiar with too. And it makes me think about uh, another question, which is that there does seem to be a tendency, I think, if we're not cautious as well as curious, or if we're not critical of uh, ending up using some of these other sources of knowledge in order to kind of justify or confirm what we already believe about whatever source of knowledge we're bringing to that conversation, in this case, Buddhism. This is something I've seen quite often in America where, you know, you have people writing books about how the latest scientific revelations reveal that the Buddha was right and meditation is exactly this and we should all sit down and meditate in exactly this way. And I think there's both a kind of light side and dark side to that. I think it's good, for example, that you know some Dharma teachers in America have integrated psychotherapy with Buddhism. Uh, some people have crit uh, criticized that. I actually think that is positive, so we might agree on that to some degree. But I think there is this tendency at, at times to to not really ask the next question, you know, to what degree are we actually sure about this? Um, are we asking slightly deeper, richer, or more critical questions to make sure that we're not just saying, okay, we've got the badge of approval from science, off we go. And there are two games at play there, and I'll try to be clear about this. One is that, so it's seeking kind of justification for what's done in what is often still quite a religious sphere. The other one is kind of looking for proof that pre-existing ideas are correct or right. I just wonder if you're aware of that, and if so, what do you do, again, to stay sharp and be cautious about that happening? The answer might be a bit complicated, but there are certainly people who, um, who come to neuroscience, for example, with, a, with a, a, an extraordinary set of Tibetan beliefs or Thai beliefs, highly religious 
truth claims and then try and match that up with scientific um, scientific speculation or even scientific findings. Now, the, the thing is that the, the Dharma is about practice and it's not about beliefs. It's not uh, about assertions of truth. It is a, a matrix of working concepts. It's the way in which we can articulate our experience in meditation and our experience in the world. Um, and in, within, within secular Buddhism itself, there is a kind of um, bifurcation that, for instance, a lot of American secular Buddhists uh, seem to be um, overly influenced by the new atheists and who are sort of using science as a way of debunking religion. Now, you know, if I was living in America, I might be highly tempted to do that because, you know, America is a kind of outlier in Western culture in the, in the high degree of religiosity that's going on and all the trouble that Christians and so on make there, you know, with the evangelicals who vote for Trump and the rest of it. But in the rest of the West, um, you know, Christianity has has learned to behave itself, has become much more modest and uh, low profile. And, um, and so the, the rest of us outside of America are really interested in matching the Dharma up with post-metaphysical philosophical thought, which is a set of questions and you know inquiry points. It's not a question of matching this assertion with that assertion, but actually uh, working through inquiries. And that's where I feel at home. I think you've already said that you feel at home there, and I know Stephen does. Um, and um, so that's why, you know, when someone comes along like Heglund, who's a, a good representative of that sort of thing, we say, wow, you know, this is, this is how we ought to be putting these points. <clears throat> it's not a question of, of having having him prove scientifically something that we think we stand for, but a good way to articulate something that accords with our experience. This is my Sam Harris interruption, or as he once used to call it, housekeeping, which I quite like really, housekeeping. I don't think I've ever engaged in housekeeping. It sounds like the kind of thing upper middle class people used to do in the Victorian age. But anyway, that's besides the point, isn't it? This interruption serves to remind you of two things, and I'll keep it brief. Number one, this podcast now has a donation option on its website, imperfectbuddha.com, and I'm not going to manipulate you like Sam might. I'm just going to say a couple of straightforward things. Think about it. How much do you listen to this podcast? Really, how much have you got out of it? If the answer is very little, then skip ahead. But if you're a regular listener who benefits from these kinds of interviews I hold, and these kind of creative turns that I've been experimenting with, then you might want to give something back. And here's my thoughts on it. If you don't give something back to me, give something back to someone else. Perhaps to your favourite podcast. The other one, of course. Uh, hmm. Anyway, I think it's right that you do so. I do so myself. And it needs to happen really in this day and age. I know how much time and energy I put into all this. So... Some of my favourite podcasts, well, they're doing exactly the same thing. And apart from those on the BBC or that belong to other professional organisations, the lesser ones, like this one, are usually put together by 
hardworking, inspired individuals trying to share quality content. So give something back today, folks. Give something back. Secondly, well, as you should know by now, this podcast is sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. That's my coaching business. And if you don't know the spiel, I'll quickly give it to you in one minute max. I offer coaching, support, mentoring and guidance to those taking, well, a different kind of approach to spirituality and Buddhism, waking up, coming to know your mind, dealing with your emotions, etc., etc. Any of the themes we've tackled on the podcast can be faced in a one-to-one coaching dynamic. Many people find it useful. I've been refining and tailoring my approach over the last few years. I'm finding it more rewarding too, and it seems that other folks are too. Three options, coaching, Buddhist-style practice and engagement, and the shamanic stuff that, well, a lot of people seem to be rather curious about, to the point that I might actually have a podcast episode on that topic soon, but shan't give away my secrets right now. The kind of information for O'Connell Coaching is now being placed all together at the same website, imperfectbuddha.com. Get in touch if you feel the need. Great. So look, you've mentioned Martin Hagland quite a bit here, and it's also an influence in your book called Revamp. Uh, You've already hinted at why his work is particularly important. Is there anything else you might want to share about him? I mean, he's not such a well-known academic, so I, I would imagine... Quite a lot of our listeners will not be familiar with his work. What's what's he doing that's that's important and perhaps an innovation or, or a forward movement in thinking more deeply or critically about the role of the secular and the non-secular? I think he's very creative in the way he teases out certain themes in Hegel and Heidegger to start with um, about um, about the human predicament. You know that we we are these animals that are going to die, and as far as we know, the only species that can can foresee our own death. And so, how do we find meaning in a world in which everything is at risk, and for that reason, everything is at stake? And um, so, and then he 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 actually then takes these ideas to a, a, a really interesting discussion of um, certain people who've written exorbitantly detailed confessions, beginning with Augustine, but then Proust and uh, Karl Ulver Knausgård, the Norwegian novelist, and showing how these philosophical ideas uh, uh, gain an artistic, a really interesting kind of artistic expression to show what it means to own one's own life. This is what we are trying to do, to own our own lives and for that matter to own our own deaths, which is, you know, sort of the final chapter. Um, So that's the first aspect of his achievement. The second one is to show that if one adopts Um, an ethic of care, and this is what drives the Dharma, is the ethic of care, Abhamada in in Pali. This is the whole basis of Dharmic ethics. And if one really cares, then one must care about things like 
um, the imminent destruction of the planet through global warming. Um, and one must also care about the massive and accelerating injustices and inequalities in over the globe, both at the global level and at the local level. So this is saying we have to be civically active. We have to, we have to deal with this. We have to engage in it, engage with it. And um, to a lot of uh, conventional Buddhists, this is anathema. <laughs> Buddhism has this original sin of being um, uh, an individual solution. And, um, and I don't think that's what the Buddha had in mind. And it's one of Stephen Batchelor's arguments that um, he wasn't actually uh, giving everyone an individual solution to their problem. So he was laying the basis for a new civilization. And, um, and I think that uh, converges quite well with the second part of Heglon's book, uh, where he talks about um, uh, the transition to democratic socialism and so on. So apart from uh, Martin, are there other contemporary thinkers who you're engaging with to, to think more about religion, spirituality and, and practice? Yes, Pope Francis. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. I was, I was um, asked there, uh, I've, I've got a, a, a teaching relationship with uh, a kind of renegade Catholic outfit here called the Aquinas Academy. I mean, you know, they're very much part of the church um, empire. Uh, but I was asked to run a course on the Pope's encyclical on global warming and um, uh, Laudato Si. And I was just astonished. I'd never heard of it. Um, and um, it, it was a really interesting example, uh, again, to refer back to Heglund, of someone who who is the acme of religious faith, Heglund's no-no, but yet is essentially expressing secular faith. And he is concerned about life on this earth at this time. It's an extraordinarily powerful document. And, if, um, and we had a great time talking about that, uh, a bunch of Catholics, a priest, a nun and myself, um, and uh, and it was a ripper of a course, and partly because there was such spirited, uh, such spirited um, engagement from the students. And on the basis of that, I was asked to do another similar um, course on his later on the Pope's later encyclical, um, Fratelli Tutti, which um, which is another absolute ripper <laughs> of a of a statement of secular faith you know we have to do something about the massive injustices uh of the world and uh so you know um it to me it was a, it was a it was a great corrective to this um what i see as an intellectually shallow way of always uh pitting secularity against religiosity here was here was you know and and a not insignificant figure who <laughs> um, was showing that that really it made no difference if you were being serious about your ethics. 
So look, let's um, let's shift gears slightly. I, I want to talk a bit more about your book before we finish, but part of this longer series that we've been engaged uh, in has been also questioning people about how they engage with, with their own personal practices, which contrasts obviously with what you've just been saying, but it's a useful topic, I think, to discuss, especially if we ask the right kind of question. So we are meaning-seeking animals, and there's a lot of interesting discussion going on at the moment, actually, about the role of meaning in society and how we might think about meaning in the search for meaning and the establishment of communities of meaning in an age where a lot of people have not just taken secular principles seriously, but seem to have gone beyond that and have lost any sense of how they might find meaning in their lives. So look, what about yourself? Let's, let's go for some of the basic questions. You know, there are three fundamental questions when we think about meaning for the individual. Who am I? Why am I here? And how shall I live? So, you know, those are kind of biggies, but maybe you can answer them in whatever way you feel. It's sort of the classical questions of how should I live and what sort of person should I become? And the second question is referring to the virtues I should be developing, at least, you know, if you want is Socrates or uh, Aristotle. Um, and uh, how should I live, of course, then is a, is a directly ethical question. And uh, it goes back to the central ethic of the Dharma of care. And it has two two kind of facets that are important, that to care for someone or care about someone or something um, is, is uh, one of those facets. And, and, you know, we should be caring as broadly and as narrowly as possible. Uh, the, other, the other facet of care is, um, is how we go about things, that we take care with whatever we're doing, whether we're cooking a meal, and I've just come from actually cooking a complicated Asian dish, <laughs> which has made me slightly inarticulate, uh, but to take, actually to take care in what you're doing, how you're meditating, how you are dealing with your experience in a meditation sit, or how you are dealing with a particularly obnoxious person who has who has somehow come into your orbit. And um, so the Buddha's final words, um, his very final words is on his deathbed where as things fall apart, tread the path with care. And and the care I think had this had this double meaning, although the meanings obviously overlap. So that's I suppose what I what I try to do. Um, whether I'm whether I'm doing so-called spiritual practice, like going to my weekly meditation session and meeting up with my dharma mates, um, or whether I'm uh, looking after my grandchildren, uh, or whether I'm you know writing a letter to the editor of the daily paper or something like that, it just seems to me that, that whatever I'm doing, it's going to express that sort of care and otherwise it won't it won't work i mean another thing that i do is i write um historical fiction and i just find that i that in order to do that effectively um i really have to care about uh people who happen to be dead 
as Hilary Mantel, my lodestar, has it, you know, that you have to actually empathise with, get into the skin of your characters. And, and in my case, they're mainly characters who actually who really existed uh, but now happen to be dead. Um, and it's that sort of care that means that you can that you that that you can express yourself authentically. I think in in something like writing or any other artistic endeavor. It's interesting as well the, the the kind of relationship we establish with the past, and I like that idea of applying care to that. Not obviously you're doing that through, or at least you started doing that through the way you think about what you write. But uh, ancestor worship is is often a kind of uh, ignored practice in the West, but I've always thought about it as having that characteristic of you actually locating yourself in history with people who are tangible and real, as you're doing with your books, uh, and also realizing that you, you come from somewhere in that sense, and that doesn't have to fix your identity in a specific way, but it does enrich in your sense of what you are in, in, in this time and place. And, you know, maybe that's part of the, the answer to the question, who am I? Because, uh, of course, religions give us answers for that kind of question, don't they? But yeah. to go back to the point you made about care being something you do within what you do and not just as a kind of large-scale project, for example, engaging in activism or some giving money to charity and whatnot. But I think the question of who am I is also, in a sense, similar. I don't mean in a grand metaphysical sense, who am I, do I have a soul and whatnot, but that question of how I position myself in relationship to something like caring or choosing to care is also important. I don't know if that makes sense to you or what you'd say about that if someone, again, said, well, who are you, Winton? <laughs> well, again, I mean, um, sorry to mention Martin Hegelund again, but he's got a really interesting way of dealing with that in, in talking in his discussion of identity. Um, you know, we the way he puts it is that each of us has a number of practical identities. You know, we are this person's son or daughter, we are this person's father or mother, we are this person's sibling, we are this person's life partner. Uh, we have this productive work that we do um, and so on. So we try to do, we do our best. We try and put our best foot forward in all these practical identities. But we are finite creatures you know we can't we can't do it all perfectly so we have this overarching identity which he calls existential identity and the responsibility of this existential identity is to try and find the best possible balance between uh the practical identities i mean you know this is where the buck stops this is the uh where we are the moral agent who i think is really the subject of Dharma practice right from the beginning. The one who is taking responsibility for this. It's not, it's not the person with the reputation or the long list of publications uh, or the object of um, desire on this television screen. It is the person taking responsibility for turning up to meditation practice or making sure they're there for their kids when they need them and so on. You're answering the question, you know, what is your practice? Well, clearly there's this aspect of care. And now that you're, you've added in this existential identity as being perhaps something that you're actively engaged in. You also mentioned meditation. So obviously 
you know, secular Buddhism tends to prioritize meditation over practices that you might find in other traditions. Uh, are you a regular meditator? And if so, what kind of practice are you engaging in? And, and why do you continue to do that? Um, I'm, um, yes, I meditate regularly. Um, I go and, and I go once a week to my uh, local secular Buddhist group called the Kookaburra Sangha. And um, and we meditate together, and then we have um, a cup of tea if COVID allows, and uh, and then we have a discussion. Now, you know, two weeks out of four, we'll be talking about we'll be kicking around one of the Buddha's discourses and seeing what it means in terms of our own experience, how we apply it to our lives today, uh, and. Um, and, and so on, but um, I, I think um, the, the the importance the important thing is when what we when we are practicing meditation proper, we are following the Satipatthana Sutta, and uh, people who read it the first time are really surprised that there is nothing technical in it, because you know a lot of people in the West have learned insight meditation, for instance. Um, in a technical way because it's been taught by monks or it's been taught by people who've been taught by monks and you've got to do it this way and you've got to count your breath and you've got to do this and that. Um, there's nothing like that in the Buddha's own instructions. So we're getting back to uh, a non-formulaic form of meditation where you simply open up your body and mind and let them display their contents and the effort the discipline is to keep up with it, is to be able to stay with it, to be to be as conscious as possible to what is actually happening to this mind, body, this organism in this particular uh, in this particular moment. Uh, so that um, that's certainly our version of insight meditation. It's not just practiced by secular Buddhists. Um, uh, a lot of Zenis do it as well, or something like that, you know, just sitting. Um, but uh, but that that is the central meditation practice I think most uh, secular Buddhists would be doing. Without, I've got no idea if that's true or not, but I imagine it to be true. So, what would be two or three of the the main gains or or forms of transformation that have taken place since you've been doing this kind of practice? I think living consciously. I think it's brought me uh, to um, really savour Socrates' idea that the examined life is the only life um, worthy of a human being. Uh, so it, it really means that it means one leads a reflective life. You know, if one is a regular meditator, one can't help but notice one's responses to things the whole time or one's reactions to them the whole time. Um, there's, uh, so it, it certainly means uh, an enormous amount of moderation and of usual conflicts and getting knickers in twists and things like that. Uh, that I would have had if I hadn't been a meditator for 35 years. Because <clears throat> in a way, the meditation practice just keeps keeps going after you get up from the cushion it just you know you're still in that you're still in that mode you're observing you're taking responsibility for 
how you're responding to um, all sorts of inputs that are coming your way all the time. So 35 years is certainly a long time. What have been two of the biggest obstacles you've you've faced or come up against during this lifetime of uh, practice? Uh, well, I guess, um, you know, what um, what's known in Buddhism as the Sankaras, the inclinations, um, and, you know, putting on my Freudian hat, I would say the unconscious, you know, the id. So there are all sorts of obsessions and um, uh, you know, obsessions and fetishes that I guess we grow up with. And it's been, a, and, and so they are obstacles, um, but they, but like all obstacles uh, in a well-run Buddhist practice, they also become your teachers. And so, you know, you can, once one of these obsessions or cravings comes up, you've got the space in which to go right into it to see what is this really about? You know, where, where's it coming from? What are the causes and conditions that made it arise right now? Um, and, um, you know, this all gets back, of course, to Socrates and the examined life. But the obstacles, they start as obstacles and end up as teachers. Yeah, I like this idea of the, the fact that practice creates space for you in order to engage with these more effectively yeah i think that's that's a major gain so certainly agree with you there and just one last question related to the practicing life but I mean, there are probably lots of them of course and it's a slightly trite question but i'm, I'm going to ask you anyway uh what life lesson do you wish you'd learned sooner in life how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just go for one. I think, I think actually one of them is um, uh, I wish I'd um, uh, kept sex in its due proportion. Mm. You know, I had, had the misfortune to, uh, in my formative years, to get mixed up in the sexual revolution. Uh, and it took me a long time to realise that sex was being oversold in spades. Um, and, um, you know, if I hadn't been uh, chasing up that one, I could have done uh, a lot more creative things. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that period is being re-examined by a lot of people. Um, but I, th I think sex falls into those one of those categories where it's, it's far more important than we make it, and it's simultaneously far less important than we make it out to be, and it's a case of figuring out which one of those is applicable you know, within a given yeah. uh, phase of life. So, well, yeah, thanks for, for being honest about that. I've mentioned to listeners your book, Revamp. You've been quite busy with your writing, but this is the one I took a look at. And it's it's an interesting book, I think, for those who might be interested in exploring the sort of contemporary picture of uh, secular Buddhism and the kind of ideas and practices that a person might engage with if they're attracted to the, this way of thinking about Buddhism and practice more broadly. Uh, can you give us a brief overview of Revamp and tell us why you wrote it? Well, I, I didn't actually um, write it as a book. I, about eight years ago, I published a couple of long articles in the Journal of Global Buddhism um, about uh, the coming of uh, secular Buddhism. Uh, and those and a little talk I gave in... Uh, the one and only international conference on secular Buddhism that I know of in um, in Massachusetts 
where I made this point about the different, the kind of pro-scientific versus the pro-philosophical branches of secular Buddhism. So that, that's the first part. And then I go into um, the, the, the general issue of the inner life. I think, this is, again, this is something that's come up a lot with the rise of uh, the internet and social media, that people have, have lost touch with their inner life. And Christopher Bolas is one person who writes extraordinarily insightfully about this, and he's a psychoanalyst, uh, that people uh, just don't introspect. They don't go inside. They don't try and articulate what's going on um, you know, in the mind and in the heart and in the body. So I've dealt, I deal with that. And then I talk about uh, approach to meditation, the non-formulaic mode of meditation. And in that I've sort of criticised the way in which formulaic meditation has grown up in monastic uh, situations where the point is to induct recruits into a disciplined way of life, into becoming a disciplined cater rather than moving forward spiritually. Uh, and where, um, where, um, where compliance is the measure of spiritual progress. So I've tried to critique that in, in a way that is leading to show how one can use meditation to go directly into the inner life um, on one's own on one's own terms, using using the Dharma as a um, as as a matrix of working concepts in which to articulate what is happening in you in your practice, um, and then I get into the um, uh, the the issues about civic civic activism, civic responsibility. Firstly, in terms of um, <clears throat> the duty we owe to strangers in need and um, have a, a, a riff that I enjoy, I hope some of the readers do, on Albert Camus' book, The Plague, which was about that. And then, um, and then the final section on, um, really, which starts off with the Pope. And, uh, and uh, you know, the responsibility we have for the terrible state of the world. Good. And you've, you've reminded me really why, you know, I approached you rather than some of the other figures within secular Buddhism, because I also have more of an interest in philosophy than the science. And uh, from your references and reference points, it seems that you're certainly on that side of things. Talking about a key figure, though, I'll be interviewing Stephen Batchelor. And, you know, this is a slightly cheeky question, I guess, but what questions do you think I should ask him? Well, look, Stephen is such a moving target uh, that I would ask him in which direction he is moving right now <laughs> because it's always a surprise um, and it's always a surprise worth, um, you know, worth engaging with. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Winton. Do you have a website that we can uh, tell listeners about if they want to read more about your, your work, including your, your novels? Yes, it's just wintonhiggins.org. Great. Well, thank you for giving up your time. It was uh, a pleasure to talk to you today. Good. Thank you for uh, getting in touch, Matthew. I've enjoyed our little chat. 
This is me, Matthew O'Connell, and sponsor of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. That's right, it's my podcast and I'm sponsoring it. Hmm, is that even possible? Well, who cares? I'm doing it. And this is really a reminder that I coach, mentor, and teach folks the weird and wonderful ways of the practicing life. Drawing on person-centered counseling, life coaching, critical dialogue, and years of teaching and group facilitation, I coach and mentor folks looking for an alternative to the current market of self-help, spirituality, and religion. Much of what I have specialized in touches on themes that have been explored in the podcast. So for those new to this podcast and this kind of approach to coaching, let me fill you in a little bit. I use post-traditional tools and tools taken from the world of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism and my own experimentations with both. Most of the clients that come to me through this podcast are current or ex-Buddhists, ex-spiritual types, and those cautiously approaching practice with a view to keep their intelligence and critical faculties intact. If you are an intellectual hiding your desire for something along the lines of a spiritual practice, yes, the scary quotes are out there, don't be shy, come on out of the closet and be proud. We'll find a way to make it work that you don't need to be ashamed of. Seriously, I mean it. I work with traditional coaching and counselling methods too, as well as meditation. And for the more adventurous folks, I can offer shamanic tools well, they're really neo-shamanic tools and concepts and something akin to a practice rooted in a reconfiguration of our relationship with the natural world, minus the romanticism. I offer a sliding scale, so whatever your economic status, if you're genuinely interested in upping your game, money should not be an obstacle. Wherever you find yourself in your life right now, if you wish to refine your relationship with practice and take a leap into a deeper relationship with the practicing life, do get in touch. The first session is non-committal and won't cost you a dime, a euro, a cent or a penny. We'll decide together whether it's going to be a potentially good working relationship and if so, you can commit to a cycle of practice sessions. I currently do most of those online through Skype or Zoom, although if you happen to be in Italy or somewhere near the border, you might even come down for a session in person. You'll find all you need in a contact form at imperfectbuddha.com or you can get in touch through imperfectbuddha at outlook.com. 